Well, hello, my name is Dustin Johnston. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Thank you. And uh, I uh, lead Life Leadership College here and oversee the Next Gen Ministries. And as always, anytime I'm up here, it's an absolute honor to be able to preach uh, for you guys today. We are in a new series called Mixtape. And uh, for those of you that are my age and older, you might be very familiar with what this archaic technological device is. But I guarantee you there are people in this room today that are like, what is that? Uh, th- there are many people that probably have no idea what this, what this means. I mean, you could ask your, your kid, your grandchild, they probably wouldn't know what to do with this. Uh, but it was a very popular thing in the mid-80s, mid-90s, and mixtapes were typically homemade music compilations that were originally put onto these cassette tapes. So being a child of the 90s, I would, I would put this into my boom box that was in my room, and I would listen to the radio, and when one of my favorite songs came on, I would quickly hit record to be able to capture the entire song. And if you had a boombox in your room, then you probably know that you can't just press one button to record. What do you got to do? You hit play and record at the same time, right? And it, it captures whatever it hears. And so I would do that. I'd listen. Uh, and, then, and then afterwards, this is what I would do. I would rewind the tape. I would play and listen to that song again. And I would record over any cuss words in the song so that I could then listen to it at max volume because, I mean, I can't listen to songs with cuss words in my, in my house because I'm a Christian. So that, no one, is that just me, Christian remixes early on? Anybody else? No? All right. Uh, mixtapes were just a small part of my childhood. I quickly evolved, upgraded, uh, because in my youth, this was what I would do. Is anybody familiar with what, what this is? It's, it has nothing to do with school. It's not a school binder. You want to see? This is my actual high school CD collection, and they came, it, these are, these have not been changed since high school either, and so you'll see, well, 1998 right here. If you grew up in church, you'll know what that is, uh, but this is filled, and this is just one of my CD binders. I had many CD binders, and when I would get in the car uh, in the morning to go to school, I would first pick out which CD I was going to listen to on the way there, and if you were really fancy, you, you could like put six of these bad boys into your car, and then you could just kind of rotate between them. I just had one, uh, but I, I, would, I, I would listen to, and you'll notice that the majority of these are just like rewritable CDs that I got from Target. I'd have like 500 of those things sitting by my computer at home, and I would make mixtapes for myself. If friends made mixtapes for me, um, you'll see one here, Mix of Cool Songs. It's really creative title there. Cool Mix is this purple rewritable disc right there. I'm not kidding you, really, really cool mix right there. So the, these were these were my mixtapes, and there were a collection of hit songs of the summer, fun songs, and you know that mixtapes started relationships, right? When you liked someone, you first made them a mixtape. Mixtapes were endless hours of entertainment because after you get done with 60 minutes on the first side, you flip this bad boy over and side B has a whole new set of 60 minutes worth of songs. In this series, we're going to be listening to the hits. 
We're going to be uh, having a, a, a different sermon each week that's dealing with a different text or theme or story from the Bible that is in some way a favorite. And, and so I want to share with you today my, one of my favorite portions of Scripture, one of my favorite uh, texts from the Bible. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can open it up. Near the back is 1 Peter, and we can go to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've got your devices, very easy to find that right now. 1 Peter chapter 1. Will you turn there with me? And I want to read it to you at first. You can read along with me, but I want you to listen to it like you would a, a song off of a mixtape. I want you to just kind of listen to it first and then we'll talk about it. I don't want to interrupt the great song by saying, hey, this is my favorite part. I want you to be able to listen to it and, and then we can talk about it. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's our text that's a song off the mixtape. And it is a, a, a piece of, uh, of a letter that, that the Apostle Peter wrote about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and he's writing at a critical juncture in the life of the early church. You see, cr culture around them was shifting rapidly, and at, at a rapid pace, society was becoming increasingly anti Christian. You can read here in 1 Peter and you'll see that believers were being abused by their bosses. They were being threatened by unbelieving spouses, ridiculed by skeptical neighbors. And on the horizon, they could see the very real possibility of a much more violent form of persecution. These believers we're trying to make sense of what it meant to be a Christian in this new and evolving world. Does any of this sound familiar to the day and time in which we live? It should. From terrorist attacks to racial injustices to political upheaval, we find ourselves in an increasingly secular world that seems to have lost its moral center. And in post-Christian America today, we are facing some unique and challenging times. And there are arguments to be made whether or not we were ever a Christian nation to begin with, and, and I'm not here to argue one way or another, but regardless of where you land on that, I think that we can all agree that one nation under God doesn't look or feel that way anymore. 
Our world is changing, and so the culture out there, not that it's inherently negative and not that it is a thing for us to necessarily combat, but here, what I mean is this. The church is very rapidly being removed from the center of cultural and political power and is once again being pushed to the margins. You can look all throughout history, and the majority of time, up until like 330, 380 AD, the church had been in the margins. All throughout the Old Testament, the majority of the New Testament, and then there was this shift where kind of the church was kind of there and, and on the main stage. And here in America, it's been there for a long time, and we are now seeing it, seeing culture shift around us to where we are being pushed to the margins, and I don't necessarily think that that is a bad thing. But when this happens, we, we respond. I mean, just naturally, we, we respond. And so I'm borrowing from a book called Take Hearts, and I want to share with you three common ways that we tend to respond to the shifting culture around us and see if you align with any of these. If you're, if you're taking notes, you can write them down so that you can kind of review them. Number one, convert culture. Maybe that is your response, that you attempt to convert culture. This is the idea that we must change culture to reflect biblical principles and values. And while that sounds good in theory, when our desire to change culture supersedes our desire to change people, we've lost our way. Yeah, yeah. Christians are called to go into culture and to seek the good of those around us, but the reality is until Christ returns, this world is never going to look the way that it should. So, so maybe that's you. Maybe your, your, your tendency is to try to convert the culture around you. Secondly, maybe you try to condemn culture. This is the us versus them mentality. The idea that we must remove ourselves from culture. We take ourselves out of culture because society is inherently sinful and corrupt. And we don't want it to pollute us. And so we distance ourselves. There's certainly something admirable here. I mean, God does call his people to holiness. Amen. Scripture is clear that the church is to be a, a distinct and different people from the rest of the world. Yes and amen. We are to be salt, right? We taste different. But what good is salt all by itself? How many of you are ever just downing vials of salt? No, that's disgusting. No one, no one would enjoy that. Salt is only good when it's sprinkled on other food to preserve and to flavor. And so there comes a time in the life of a Christian where we have to actually get involved with the culture and the world around us. There comes a time in the life of a Christian where, we're, where to fulfill the Great Commission, we actually have to get up and go into all the world. Convert culture, condemn culture, maybe neither of those are you. Maybe you fall more in line with this third one, and you consume culture. This one in in many ways, is most attractive, most widespread, and most scary. This is the idea that we must follow trends, and in order to remain relevant, we become like culture. 
This model sees Christianity as being fundamentally compatible with the surrounding culture. And when culture and, and, and historical Christianity conflict with one another, because they will, culture wins out every time. These three options, convert, condemn, and consume, while appealing in some ways, all have something in common. They are born of fear. They are rooted in fear. Their underlying like sense of force there is, is fear. Fear is the leading emotion in these responses. And so rather than allowing ourselves to slip into one of these, what I would consider incomplete and unhealthy responses, I believe that God is calling us as believers to an altogether different approach. A fourth option that I believe that our author, Peter, lays out and, and builds out in this text today. And so now that you've listened to the song, First Peter, I, I want you to, I want us to be able to walk through this text kind of bit by bit and actually see what he's trying to show his audience and in turn us that are here today reading it. So let's actually start back with verse one. We didn't read it originally, but it's important to see who Peter is actually writing to. So look there in verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to God's elect exiles. Important words there, elect exiles. Will you say those words with me? Elect exiles. It's important to begin here because you've got to know who he's writing to to see how it relates to us. Elect exiles, elect being God's chosen people. Exiles, in your version of scripture, it might say uh, strangers, it might say aliens, which is always super cool to be identified as an alien, right? Uh, but, 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 but it's this idea of, of someone that's different. So elect exile was originally a, a designation given to the Jews in the Old Testament as they were God's people who had been driven out of Israel to live in a foreign land. And now Peter, here in the New Testament, is giving this designation to the church, capital C Church. Do you know who that includes? That includes you and me, even many years here removed, that he, Peter would say to you, maybe, you are God's chosen people, but you are living in a land that is currently under the domination of an opposing power. In other words, you don't really belong here. And I'm not trying to be offensive to you today. I mean, I, I don't want you to be like, oh, okay, well, thanks, bye. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm saying that, like, you don't, but you don't belong here. Scripture is clear that although we are citizens of this world, citizens of the United States, maybe more specifically, we're citizens of Wisconsin, that, that we are indeed strangers, that we're foreigners, that we're aliens, that you are odd. And that's okay. And some of you are feeling really justified right now, or like really affirmed in your oddities. I always knew there was something off about me, and now scripture backs that up, praise God, right? Uh, I want you to think of it like this. Think of a halftime show, football game, halftime show, the marching band has come out, and the whole band is there marching to the tune, and you look in the middle of the audience, uh, sorry, in the middle of the, of the band, and you see one guy out there, and he's got his own headphones on, and he's listening to Beyonce, right? Uh, imagine how odd that guy looks. 
Like, he, he's going to look very odd out there. Now, it's not odd if we could actually hear what he's listening to. If we were tuned into the same frequency and heard what he's listening to, we'd be like, all right, get it. But, and everyone else would look odd. But in the moment when we don't hear what he's listening to, he looks odd because everyone else is in step with the beat of one conductor while he's listening to the beat of another. If you're not, what I'm saying is this, if you're not odd in some of your beliefs, if, if you're not odd in some of your behaviors as a Christian, as some of your practices as a Christian, maybe it's because your life is more in rhythm with the world than with God. And this has absolutely nothing to do with the way that you dress. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you use your own Christian cuss words. It has nothing to do with, I only listen to Christian music. Well, good for you, but it, that, that's not what Peter's talking about here. It has everything to do with what you value, how you forgive, and what we'll see here in First Peter, how you deal with pain, disappointment, ridicule, and suffering. So, let's pick up in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. It's two terms here, new birth and living hope. New birth, you might be a little bit more familiar with. It's where we get the idea of being born again. Bible talks about it in so many different ways, but it's when, uh, when our dead nature was brought to, to life, when, uh, when we were in bondage to the sinful nature, and now we are set free by the Spirit of God. That's new birth. So if you have, by the grace of God, been saved, then you have been given new birth. But then Peter here talks about hope, and hope is a very different understanding within the New Testament than our normal understanding of hope. When we talk about hope, you might say, I hope the Packers will win the Super Bowl this next year. I didn't get one amen for that, but I, I hope that, and what you're saying when you say that is it's this desire for some future thing that we are currently uncertain of attaining. But that's not what Peter means here by the word hope. The concept of hope in, in Peter's letter and really all throughout the New Testament is this sense of full assurance, of strong confidence that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, that there's no doubt about it. But then Peter takes actually one step further and he says it's living hope which of course is the opposite to dead hope, similar to dead faith, which he talks about, which is talked about in James chapter two. It's this barren unproductive, purposeless hope, which would mean that on the other hand, living hope is this fruitful, productive, purposeful hope that gives you power for today. It's this hope that, that, that sustains you. It's this hope, not necessarily for just some future thing, but it's a hope that gives you strength and power and confidence for today. And Peter says that if you are born again, you have access to this living hope. You have it, he says in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Can you imagine with me for just a moment what the resurrection must have meant for Peter? Sometimes I think it's good for us to try to put ourselves into the shoes of, into the sandals of uh, the, the, the New Testament figures, to try to understand kind of what they were going through and what it meant for them. For us as believers today in the 21st century, I mean, the resurrection is huge, right? We celebrate that big, but for Peter, can you imagine what it must have been like? Peter's darkest hour had most certainly been when Jesus died. I mean, that's when everything for Peter fell apart. He had based his whole life on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. But now he had died. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Peter? That Friday and that Saturday must have been a time of utter despair of loneliness, of questioning, like, was all of this even worth it? But then Sunday morning comes, and Peter finds that the tomb is empty. And then he comes face to face with Jesus, and in a moment, all of that changes. His sadness turns to joy. His despair turns to triumph, and he realizes that the whole time, God had a plan. Yeah, Friday and Saturday were terrible. They were awful. Friday and Saturday didn't quite make sense. But Sunday came and it reversed all of that. I'm a nerd, and so sometimes literature and movies and different mediums speak to me in different ways. In the final Lord of the Rings novel, Samwise Gamgee, faithful Samwise Gamgee, reunites with the resurrected Gandalf, and he's taken by surprise and shock and awe, and this hope rises within him, and with that, he says this, is everything sad going to now come untrue? Maybe that doesn't resonate with you. C.S. Lewis, he's another author. He wrote it this way in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, some say of the temporal suffering, so, so life's temporary suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Both of these authors in their own way are saying this, that there is a day coming where every sad thing is going to become untrue, where heaven will work backwards over the tapestry of our life and, and we'll, we'll make, where disease is taken away, where you will be reunited with a lost child, where scripture calls your light and momentary afflictions will introduce you to a glory beyond all comparison. And that day is quickly approaching. That day is closer today than it was yesterday. That day is almost here if you could just hold on with the hope that I am giving you. God says you will make it and it will all be worth it. And Peter sees this as he's writing. <laughs> he sees that we right now are living in a kind of Saturday. Man, we're... We are strangers, aliens, exiles, where things are really messed up right now and they don't seem to be getting better. And we can talk about our culture, but I'm talking about in life too. I mean, I, I read the prayer requests. I know 
I know what some of you are experiencing right now. I know that one of our dear saints in here is lost now. Someone in their family so dear to them just had the funeral days ago. And the agony and the suffering and the frustration and the questions. But it's a Saturday and the Sunday is coming. We've got to hold on because there is an inheritance that is waiting for us. Peter continues, he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Start there in verse 6. He says, rejoice and grief, both intense verbs. Rejoice and grief. Have you ever been, let's talk about rejoice first. Have you ever been so excited that you've been unable to speak? We've been there before. I've seen it before when a guy gets down on his knees to propose to his his girlfriend and she can't even say yes because she's overcome by by the joy and the excitement there. I've seen as a little kid has walked into Disney World for the first time and for the first 10 minutes, she struck mute. (laughs) On the other hand, when we talk about grief, have you ever experienced a grief so deep a pain so intense that you haven't been able to put it into words. I, I think we've all been there on both sides of the spectrum, rejoice and grief. And here's a truth for you that I think Peter is trying to convey to us. Walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. Walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. And I know some of you are thinking, how could that possibly be? How would I ever be able to experience great joy in the midst of deep pain? Let me ask you this. How do you respond to life's circumstances? When you are dealing with difficult things in life, how do you naturally respond? Some of us, we just break down. Right? You just lose your mind, right? Your mind goes to a, a, a dark place, thinks of worst case scenario, and automatically takes you there, and then we entertain those thoughts until we're falling apart from the inside out. Maybe that's you. I know no one's like, yep, that's me. No one wants to admit, acknowledge that. Maybe you are like me, though, and you respond by just trying to ignore the problem. Right? You're just like, it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening, and you think if you say that enough times, you're going to convince yourself and it's going to become true. Right? So maybe you're like me and you stick your head in the sand and you just wait for it to pass over. Still others of you, you fake it till you make it, right? You just plaster a smile on your face and you go about life all jolly like nothing's going on bad. And you've got a mantra, you've got a mantra for everything, right? So some of you will be able to help me out with this. Uh, you say to yourself, God is good and all the time. Mm, we know who you are, right? You speak to yourself in these mantras and you're like, pray, like let go and let God you know he will. Like, you've got these things that you say and you convince yourself that it's all going to be okay when it's not. Uh, Like Jesus, when he faced the cross, he didn't say, well, praise the Lord. No, scripture says that he wept, that he, uh, it actually says that he was overwhelmed with sorrow. 
He cried out to his father. And if Jesus can do that, how much more can we as mere mortals experience hurt and pain? But the beautiful thing is, is that for the Christian, their hurt can only go so deep because their ultimate hope is in a God that brings life back from the dead, in a God that turns tragedy into triumph, in a God that takes us through the cross to get to the resurrection. This is our hope. That though our faith may be tested by fire, our future result is praise, glory, and honor for both Christ and what Peter actually means here for the Christian. That is our future, but I understand, Life Church, that that is not our present. And that's why we tend to respond in inadequate ways. That's why we try to convert culture. We condemn and consume the things that are going on around us because in some ways that helps us make sense of the here and now. But what Peter has laid out for us is a fourth option. One that's not any of those that are rooted in fear at all, but in one that is rooted in Christ and in the power of his resurrection. And if you're taking notes, this fourth one far, far, is far greater than all of the other three combined, and that is Christian courage. Christian courage. And don't be confused. Courage is not the opposite of fear. It's just that it's not rooted in fear. To understand it a little bit better, maybe this quote by Ambrose Redmoon might be helpful. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. You can't have courage without fear. Real courage is when you step into that fear you feel, but you recognize that there is something greater than that fear, and so you step forward with confidence and with boldness. It's when you share Jesus with a coworker. It's when you help someone when they can't offer you anything in return. It's when you walk with integrity in the workplace when it's not the easy thing to do. That, my friends, is courage. It's when ordinary Christians live in a way that is empowered by something that transcends our current circumstance. And it is not easy. I mean, can I just be real with you? It is, it is a lot easier to live a life out of fear. It is a lot, a lot easier to, to, to allow our natural inclinations to kick in and to respond to the shifting culture around us in fear. But that has never led to positive results. Fear cannot produce joy. Fear doesn't create confidence. Fear doesn't allow you to live the life that God has called you to live. But if we have courage, we can walk forward confidently and with great purpose. This is a great time to be a Christian in America. I'll just tell you that. With courage, this season of history can be viewed not with fear and trepidation, but instead with hope and a sense of opportunity. The light shines brighter in the midst of the darkest nights. Guys, as, as things, and I, I'm, not a, 
I'm not a, a prophet. Like, I can't tell you what the future holds, but if we can look in the tea leaves and we can see where things are headed, it doesn't look like Christianity is being applauded. It doesn't look like we are being upheld. I think that things are going to get increasingly difficult in many avenues of our life. But we do not have to fear because our God is in control. Our God has a plan. Our God has invited you and I to be a part of this. Look, and if you are ever in doubt and if you are ever given over to fear, can you remember the words that Paul spoke to an audience very similar to ours and very similar to the one that Peter was writing to? They were experiencing a time where, man, things were getting increasingly difficult to be a Christian, and they, they could see just a few years down the line where Christians would be burned alive and fed to lions. Yep. Paul wrote to his group of Christians and he spoke both realistically and boldly to these men and women and he said, for God's sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. With courage, our perspective changes. Because instead of focusing on the shortcomings of society or setting our eyes on, on our own inconsistencies and failures, we can set our eyes on the successes of the Savior. And we can look back to the success of the resurrection and know that there is a day coming where he will come to right all wrongs where he will come to fix everything that is broken. So we do not have to fear. We do not have to give up hope. We do not have to acquiesce to the shifting culture around us. We can have courage because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So God, we come to you and we, we ask for your Holy Spirit-inspired boldness. Because God, we cannot do this alone. God, we, we cannot possibly make it on our own. We are going to fall short. We are going to fail time and time again. We need your strength. And God, in the moments of our life when we fail, feel fearful, I pray that you would help us to not give in to that fear. God, that you would help us to trust even when we can't quite see what you're doing or where you are. And God, would you remind us that we are quite literally made for this moment? You put us here for such a time as this. And so today, collectively, may our faith rise. May you give us Christ-centered Christian courage as we face whatever life may bring. And we know that it's in the power of the resurrection, it's in the power of Jesus' name that we can say these things, pray these things, and believe these things will come to pass. And if you're in this room and you agree with that prayer this morning over your life, would you say amen?